In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. One of our first Sundays meeting as a a church. We were back in Williams Middle School. That was two moves ago, about four years ago. And something happened that was, a, it wasn't funny, but it's, it's, it's funny now. Um, there was a family who, uh, the Schistlers, if you guys don't know the Schistlers, they're sitting right up here. And one of their kids had taken the communion cup uh, that we drink the grape juice out of. And, and I guess, um, I guess he was like kind of sticking his tongue in it to try to savor every last drop, you know. Um, see some other kids doing that, kids. That if you're doing that, let this be a warning to you. The cup was cracked, or he cracked it because he was going after it so hard or something. And it, it cut his tongue. And so in the middle of the service, he just gets up and he runs back towards the bathroom. Um, and I was, I don't know what had happened, you know. So I was standing in the back and I want to go see what was going on. So I rushed over there. They're back by the bathrooms and the water fountain. His tongue is like bleeding like crazy. And I was like, what? Did he chew on a piece of glass? Like what happened here? Those dang communion cups. Um, so they're back there doing that. I didn't know the Schistlers that well at the time. Um, I'd met Brad and Stephanie, but I hadn't really gotten to know them very well. So I didn't know a whole lot about them. Um, so I run up there and I'm like, is he okay? And I said, hey, if, if, if you're worried about this, I can go get Tammy, you know, she's a nurse. And those of you laughing know that Stephanie Schussler is a doctor. <laughs> and so I'm up here talking to a doctor going, hey, if y'all need to go get someone, I will. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll be over here now. Right? <laughs> if you need, well, never mind, I'll, I'll just be over there. So it's funny, but, but introductions matter. Introductions matter. If, if you don't know who someone is, their background, their, their approach to life, it matters, right? Like, I think about the Schistlers now and how, like, I've gotten to know them and how they are just one of the most supportive, encouraging families um, of this church and of us pastors, too, right? That when you know a little bit about someone and their approach and their background, it changes how you listen to them. Like, if 
no one's, no one's uh, hesitant to give medical advice, right? If you have a sick kid or someone like that you're talking about, everyone's got their two cents they want to throw in. But now that I know the Schistlers, like that, I would weigh that in a lot more heavily um, if she were to throw her two cents in. Um, so introductions matter. Um, knowing who someone is and their approach makes a difference on how you listen to them, um, how you take their advice, how you approach them, how you view the things that they say. Um, and so this morning, we're actually going to spend some time introducing the book of Matthew. Now, if you've been with us for a while, that may sound a little odd because we're now in Matthew chapter 3, but sometimes it takes us a while to realize what's happening around here. Um, so but we, we started Matthew right when we started Advent, didn't really have a good chance to introduce the book and the author, so we're going to take some time to do that. And then in our text, we're going to look at John the Baptist, who is really, his role was introducing Jesus. Um, so we're going to talk about those two things this morning. Um, so first we'll start with an introduction to the book of Matthew. So you guys, if you know much about Matthew, probably the one thing you do know is that he was a tax collector. Um, so he was someone who would not have been liked by the religious people in Israel. They would have had a lot of disdain and enmity towards someone in Matthew's position. He was a tax collector, and yet Jesus called him to be one of his 12 Disciples, Guys, in the New Testament, um, it begins with the book of Matthew, and then there are four what we call gospels, which are writings about the life and ministry, um, documents or accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, John is very different than the other three, but the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very, very, very similar. And even though they're very similar, each one has its unique perspective um, that we can learn and glean from. So I wanna talk about the three key features of Matthew, things you're gonna see as we walk through this book. And just keep that in mind that knowing this is gonna inform and enrich your understanding of this book as we walk through it the next few months or year, however long it takes us to get through it. Um, wasn't a joke, whoever laughed at that. So 54, uh, so first of all, fulfillment. Matthew has a, Matthew has a big emphasis on the idea that Every, all the promises in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in Jesus. Everything that was promised, hoped for, expected, awaited, it's all being fulfilled in this person, Jesus. The, um, the, Matthew cites the Old Testament 54 different times. So there's 28 chapters in Matthew, so that's almost two per chapter. So almost two Old Testament quotations for every chapter in the book of Matthew, more than any other gospel He's citing references from the Old Testament, talking about how Jesus is fulfilling everything that was promised in our Old Testament. Um, the phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken, that phrase right there occurs 11 different times in the book of Matthew. Let's look at a couple examples just real quick that we've already read in Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two, 15 through 18. It says, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So he's talking about Jesus' parents fleeing to Egypt and connecting that to Old Testament passages. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Matthew two seventeen says this, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. So, so that phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets or prophet, occurs 11 different times. So Matthew's very concerned about showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of all the promises in the Old Testament. The second thing we see about Matthew is that he puts a lot of emphasis on this idea that Jesus was a Galilean Messiah. That, that may not sound significant, but hopefully it will by the end of this. Being from Galilee is extremely significant. You guys might recall the story when um, Peter denies Jesus. A man walks up to him and says, aren't you the, one of the followers of Jesus of Galilee? Being from Galilee in this time in Israel was a big deal. Um, it meant a lot for someone. So I wanna look at Israel's climate a little bit with you guys this morning. Um, just a little bit of cultural background for you. So David Watkins, who, does this not look amazing? This the screen, like David and Nick were up here till like two in the morning, like seriously, like probably seven, eight, and I don't know, many nights installing these projectors, getting this set up for us. And we now call David Watkins triple wide in case, you're, uh, in case you need a nickname for David Watkins because it's like three projectors making one image. But for now, it's awesome because we get three projectors making three different images. So this is a map of Israel in the time of Jesus. Let's start here with the middle one. You can see up in the top, that purple section, that's Galilee. That's just kind of this, this region of what at one time was the nation of Israel. Um, and then you can see, if we go on the left side, Nazareth, this is kind of zoomed in on Galilee. That's where Jesus lived. That's where he set up his ministry. It's where he grew up. He lived in this region of Galilee. Now you'll also notice that Jerusalem, which you guys know is the capital city of Jerusalem, religiously, politically of Israel, it's like the the place, right? It's like the center of everything they believe um, is in Jerusalem where the temple is. And so you can see that it's um, much further south. Um, and so Jesus lived up in Galilee, the center for religious, political, everything about the people of God was located in Jerusalem. And this, this distance was not just a geographical gap. Um, it was way bigger than that. Um, the difference in Galilee and Judea, which is kind of the, the, the blue region where Jerusalem lies, the difference in those two regions um, was huge. One commentator said it this way. He said, even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. In other words, for Jesus to be in Jerusalem, which we'll see at the end of his life, um, would be seen as out of place, that those in Judea would kind of look down their nose at Jews who live in Galilee. Um, there was a cultural difference. Um, the, the, the northern part in Galilee um, was more influenced by Gentiles and Greeks, those who weren't Jewish. And so the way they lived their lives was very different. They weren't as strictly abiding by the law typically in Galilee as they would have in Judea. Um, even linguistically, they had a little bit of an accent. And so you can imagine people in Judea kind of making fun of people who lived in Galilee for dropping their H's and other things that gave them like this northern accent that maybe made them sound a little less educated and a little less Jewish than those who lived in Judea. Um, economically, a little bit different here, but around the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot more wealth, a lot more trade, and so just to kind of add to the disdain, those who lived in Judea, although they thought they were better spiritually than those in Galilee, um, were probably a little jealous about the people in Galilee who had more wealth. Um, religiously, the main difference, remember a lot, of the, a lot of the expectations for Jews, right, is that they would come to the temple of God to worship. 
So being in Galilee presented an obstacle to that because that was a bigger deal. That was a couple days journey to get there. And so there were less trips to the temple. There was less familiarity with like those who were in charge, the priests and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, all the religious leaders lived in Judea. And so being in Galilee meant you were a step removed from that. You were a little bit less than, you were less likely to be any kind of a leader or prominent figure in the Jewish religion. In some ways we could say that Jesus' success in Galilee in his ministry uh, might have worked against him in terms of Jerusalem, that Jesus did all of his ministry up here in the north in Galilee, and then what you're gonna see is that people from Judea sent some people up there, kind of like, um, like, yeah, things are going well up there in Galilee, and your, your little tricks and teachings, that may be real impressive to those guys up there who are still trying to figure out what shoes are for and what the Bible means, but, but for those of us who live in Judea, we're gonna, we're gonna decide if that's really legitimate or not. There is this, this arrogance in this... Um, the sense of superiority they would have, those living in Judea. Um, in verse chapter two, verse 23 of Matthew, he says, um, Matthew says, he shall be called a Nazarene. He needs, he's quoting Old Testament passages, but here's, here's an interesting um, homework problem for you. Go try to find that verse in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, because he says he's quoting the Old Testament. He says, he shall be called a Nazarene, as it is written. What you're gonna find is that that, that phrase is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. So most scholars think that basically Matthew was saying this, that like for them to say he was a Nazarene was, was, was a slander, right? Was to say he's, dis, he's disregarded, he's not thought highly of, right? You have that phrase, that can anything good come from Nazareth? And so most people think what Matthew meant by that was he was fulfilling all the prophecies like Isaiah when it said Jesus would be a man of sorrows one from whom people turn their face, that he would not be esteemed highly by the leaders in the Jewish nation and institution. That the religious leaders would not esteem the Messiah highly, that they would overlook him. And, Jesus, and Matthew sums that up by saying, he shall be called a Nazarene. That Jesus would not be looked well upon. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, it says this, a prophecy about the Messiah coming from Galilee. It says, there will be no gloom for he, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, both in Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, talking about the Sea of Galilee, and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Listen to this. The, you guys are familiar with this verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We quote that a lot at Christmas time, but that's referring specifically to the Messiah coming from Galilee, to a place that those in Israel would say is a dark place that's far from God. On them the light has shone. So even though there were prophecies about the Messiah coming to Galilee, it was prophesied, but it wasn't expected. And so a lot of, a lot of Matthew's agenda in the book is to highlight and make a big deal out of the idea of this Messiah from Galilee, that God would send his deliverer, his Messiah, that he himself would come in the flesh, not to the capital city of Jerusalem, where all the religious authorities lived, but in the outskirts of this place that was looked down upon in Galilee. And so the whole framework of the book can be viewed 
through that lens. And so just a quick overview of the book of Matthew, if you wanna write this down, it might be helpful. You have the introduction, um, chapters one through four, 11, which is part of where we're at today, talking about the person of Jesus. Um, and then it starts to, the, the way the book is laid out, it's, it's kind of laid out in a geographic way. So um, in Galilee, the proclamation of Jesus, chapter four, chapter four, verse 12 through chapter 20, which is most of the book, is all about Jesus's time in Galilee. It's him doing his life and his ministry, his teachings. The bulk of the book happens in the region of Galilee. And, and overall, it's a success story. You're gonna see through chapter four through 20, everything's going pretty well for Jesus. There's little opposition. Everyone's a fan, right? Things are going really well. But then around chapter 20, it starts to shift to where he starts making his journey towards Jerusalem. And he starts encountering opposition, confrontation, and is eventually crucified. So we see that the next section, chapter 21 through chapter 28, 15, is Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And then uniquely, Matthew ends his book back in Galilee in chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, with the Great Commission. And so just look at that outline for a second. And you can see, after you get past the introduction, that Matthew was making a big deal about the prominence and the idea that Jesus came from Galilee, that Jesus was in Galilee. That's where the Messiah had his life and teachings. Um, and here's why that's a big deal. Again, everyone in Jerusalem and Judea, those in religious authority would have, would have not expected that. They would have had disdain for someone from Galilee. And Matthew probably fits that mold. Matthew probably, as a tax collector, thought he was not really cut out for playing a major role in God's kingdom. And so he upholds for us a Messiah who came from an area and a land that wasn't esteemed highly to show us that this kingdom and this gospel and this savior is for everyone. That he is for all, that he did not come for the religious elite, but that his gospel and his kingdom was proclaimed to anyone who would lay down their lives, place their faith in Jesus and follow him. We're gonna look at that more later at the end in our application. And then the third thing we see about um, Matthew that's distinct as a gospel is that there's a lot of emphasis on Jesus' teaching. We're not gonna spend a whole lot of time here, but just something unique is that Matthew is 28 chapters, whereas Mark is 16. So Matthew is, is longer, significantly longer. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Matthew 5 through 7, that, that, that section of Jesus' teaching, Matthew devotes um, three chapters and 107 verses to that teaching of Jesus whereas Luke dedicates less than one chapter and 30 verses. And so the, the, the reason Matthew is so much longer is because he puts, he puts a ton of emphasis on the teachings and the life of Jesus. Now let me give a quick disclaimer before we move on to, to chapter three, which is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time. The last thing any of us ever wants to do here, when I say us, I mean the pastors, the last thing any of us wants to do is present this kind of information to you in such a way that you think, well, I'll never be able to really understand my Bible without those ex explanations. Look, everything I just told you, hopefully it's helpful. Hopefully it'll enrich your time in Matthew and it'll, and it'll, it'll bolster our understanding of what he's saying. But had I not said any of that, anyone in this room could have picked up their Bible, 
read the book of Matthew and God would speak to you. You have everything you need, church. You have, God has given you the Holy Spirit and in this church he has surrounded you with a group of people. You are in a great context to open your Bible at home and hear and learn from the Lord, okay? And I don't want that, that information I gave you to be intimidating. We're not smart. Like Ron, Lance, and I, we like to say about each other, he's ignorant, but he's quick, right? That everything I just gave you, I just pulled out of a commentary. You, you could go buy that same commentary on Amazon for 17 bucks and find all that same information. But we're, we're, it's a joy for us to plod through some of that and do the legwork for you um, so that you can kind of journey with us through this book and hopefully have an enriched understanding of it. But I don't want to come across that like you have to have all this special knowledge to understand Matthew. That's not the case at all. Um, so let's move on to John the Baptist and his role. So we're going to look at his role and we're going to look at his message this morning in chapter 3. Um, basically, John the Baptist's role is preparing the way for God. Like we said earlier, he's introducing Jesus. He's setting the stage. And a couple things we know about him. One is that Jesus calls him the greatest prophet. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, it says, Jesus says that John was the greatest of all the prophets who came before Jesus. So he's a big deal. Um, He's the greatest prophet. And he's, his role, part of the reason he's seen as the greatest is because his role was to announce the Messiah. Look there in chapter three, verse three, it says this. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John is seen as the greatest prophet partly because of his job is so important that he's the, the last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet preparing the way, announcing the arrival of the Messiah. Um, another interesting thing about John, just I just want to cover this in case you may have heard this and it gets a little confusing, is that Jesus at one point says he is Elijah who is to come. Um, doesn't mean like Elijah was reborn in the person of John the Baptist. That's not what that means. Um, it means that there was a prophecy about Elijah coming um, and that when Elijah came that would be the sign that the Messiah was coming on his heels and it comes from Malachi 4 5 and it says this behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes so something really interesting about all that is the prophecies about John the Baptist being Elijah and, and saying prepare the way of the Lord they weren't prophecies about someone who was going to prepare the way for a great prophet or even really for the Messiah. They were prophecies about someone who was going to prepare the way for God to come, right? The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way, not of the Messiah, but of the Lord. So part of John's sign and John's message, John the Baptist, is that God has come to be with his people, that the day of the Lord is here. So what does that mean? I, I've always kind of struggled with that when people talk about, and you hear those verses about John preparing the way for the Lord. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my first instinct is, is to say like, well, does God really need someone to like blaze a trail for him, right? I mean, if, if Jesus is, is God, he's the Messiah, what's, what is this, what does it mean for someone to prepare his way to, to make ready his path? So we'll look at that in his message so the first thing John preached was this idea of repentance. So look at chapter three, verse two. John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, that word repent means to, to change one's mind and to turn, to adopt a new course of life. That John's message was one of, you need to change how you think, how you live, because God is coming and you need to be ready. Something really unique about John, we call him John the Baptist um, because he was, he was baptizing people. Um, and actually baptism in that time was not a super uncommon practice, but here's what was unique about John. Baptism in that day, and it's not, it's not ever instructed or mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's something that the Jews had just kind of adopted. When someone who wasn't a Jew, someone who wasn't a Hebrew, would want to worship Yahweh, would want to worship their God. Baptism was something they did, but it wasn't really something that Jews did. Jews were already God's people, so the idea was they, they didn't really need that, that cleansing and that, that turning point that those who weren't of Israel did. That if you were a Gentile, you needed to be cleansed, you needed to get in this water, you needed to be wiped clean to get a new start, but if you were a Jew, you didn't need that. Here's what's unique about John. He was baptizing Jews. And there's, there's, there's a lot to that, right? Because the fact that he's baptizing them is saying, you need to change too, <laughs> right? That repentance is something you need to do. It's not something reserved to the Gentiles. It's something that you need as well. And in that, he was taking a shot at the religious leaders, right? That he was saying of the religious leaders, you are not in good terms with God like you think you are. His message is the day of the Lord is at hand. And in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord meant this. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, and, and they all have two things in common. It says when the day of the Lord comes, when God comes to visit his people, when the day of the Lord is here, there's always two things that are gonna happen. One is that there's gonna be comfort for those who are following him, right? That those who are trusting in God for their deliverance in a bad situation because they're disdained in the world here now, that when the day of the Lord comes, they will be brought near and comforted. But there's also with the day of the Lord, in fact, there's more emphasis on this in the Old Testament, that the day of the Lord means judgment for those who are not trusting in the Lord. Often when the Old Testament prophets speak about the day of the Lord, it's a warning. It's a warning to other nations and it's a warning to those in Israel that think because they are Abraham's seed that they're fine, that they and God are in good standing. And oftentimes the prophets will say the day of the Lord is coming. And when it comes, those of you who think because you're just, just because you're Jews, you're in good standing with God, but you're robbing the poor, you're disdaining the foreigner, you're shutting people out, it is going to mean judgment for you. And that's John the Baptist's message that Jesus, the day of the Lord has come and there is going to be judgment for those of you who are not walking in his ways. So repent. So turn. Turn and trust the one that you've been neglecting. And you see him speaking out so harshly against the religious leaders. Look there in verse seven, he says this, but when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, again, these are guys from Judea who've heard about this ruckus. They're coming up and they say, they said that he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And look what he tells them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's echoing a theme in the Old Testament of to obey is better than sacrifice. God is not pleased by all your attention to the rituals 
and the details and the knowledge about the law, what God wants from you is repentance. It's to turn from your wicked ways and trust and follow him. And that was John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance because the day of the Lord is at hand. Malachi chapter three, verse two, he says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look at verse two. Look at this. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. And so John's message was one of warning to those who thought because they were Abraham's offspring, they were good to go. Let's pick it up in verse 10. It says this, verse nine, I'm sorry. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is basically saying that the things that you've been trusting to put you in right standing before God, namely being a Jew, you're wrong. It's not that. God is formulating his people. He's bringing about his kingdom. And I, what I love about this, this text is that John doesn't just give us this message of repentance, of turn from your wicked ways, but also a message of hope. Because here's the deal. Even those of us who are maybe recognize that we're not spiritually elite, that we're not good to come before God on our own, even our repentance isn't enough, right? I mean, even if you know that you, you've sinned, that you, you don't have this Judean mindset of you're this spiritual elitist, that God is going to accept you because you've been so good, but, but you have this a humble heart and you want to repent, you want to turn to Jesus, you want to turn and believe in God, none of us are able to be good enough, right? So John is, is baptizing these people. And he's saying like, repent, turn to God, turn from your old ways and trust God. But you gotta figure the people would repent, right? They would say, okay, I'm gonna do that. They would get baptized, yes, I'm gonna follow, I'm gonna follow the Lord now, I'm gonna trust him fully, I'm awaiting the Messiah. They would go back home and what would happen, you think? They would probably sin again, right? That, that we can't repent enough we can't repent our way into a right standing with God, right? Like we can't turn from our sin enough to make ourselves holy and acceptable before God, which is why John doesn't just offer repentance, but hope in the Messiah. Look in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, like, look, what you're doing now is good. You need to turn, but look, don't put your hope ultimately in your ability to repent and your ability to turn to God, to try harder, to do better. God wants you to do that. He wants you to turn from your sin and to trust him. But someone is coming is gonna show you a better baptism. So Jesus comes 
And the church begins to baptize a little differently. Right? When, when we baptize, it's, just not, it's not just like this cleansing and a new start. It's more than that. It's that we are buried with Jesus in his death and raised to walk in a new life because of what Jesus has done. And we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about Jesus being baptized. But John offers us a better baptism. He offers us hope because we needed not just repentance, but we needed a way to get into right standing with God that was beyond our ability to repent and turn and try harder. So John announces someone is coming who's gonna make a way for you to be in right standing with God. And we know that right now, this side of the cross, we know that he was talking about Jesus, that Jesus would come, Jesus would die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that being, by being baptized and united with Jesus in his death, we would truly have a new life that nothing in the Old Testament could truly offer us. So what does all this mean? I mean that's kind of the point in the sermon we get to where it's like, okay, that's a lot of information about John and Matthew in this text. So what? I want to give you just two things to walk away with, with all that, all that study and information. One is just what we just talked about, that we, we needed a better baptism, right? That a baptism of repentance, of just turning from our sins and getting a fresh start, that that isn't enough, that John's message alone isn't enough, that he gives us hope that one is coming whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie, who's gonna offer a better baptism, a baptism not just of turning, but a baptism of dying to our old self and being given a new life because of what Jesus has done with his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. The second thing I hope you'll walk away with this morning is that this, this kingdom of God, this baptism, this Messiah, this, this hope is that it is available for you. Whoever you are in this room, it is there for you. It is within your reach. This kingdom, to play a role in God's kingdom, the opportunity sits just before you. That's what Matthew wants us to see, that the, the criteria for being a part of God's kingdom and playing a significant role in his mission is not just for the Judean elites. Jesus himself was not Judean, but Galilean. The kingdom is at hand, it's available, it is within reach, it is right in front of you. And here's the deal, everyone had a different expectation of the day of the Lord when the Old Testament prophets and when John the Baptist said, the day of the Lord is coming, the day of the Lord is here, it would incite one of two responses. On the one hand, some would be fearful. Those who knew that Man, they weren't good enough that when God comes, who can stand in his presence? They would be fearful. Others would be joyous of, man, I can't wait. I've been suffering for the name of the Lord. I've I've been trusting him. I've been waiting and I can't wait. And here's what the message I want Matthew, I think Matthew wants us to see. You get to decide what that's gonna be. You decide, maybe today, if the coming of the Lord is a dreadful or a joyous thing. And here's why, because it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a Judean religious elite or if you're a poor fisherman in Galilee who's never read the Bible before. You decide without any needed criteria because the criteria is not knowledge and information and stacks of 
um, pedigrees and your lineage. It's repentance. Would you turn and believe Jesus? If yes, then you can trust that the day of the Lord will be a great thing for you. But even if you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of information, but you're not living in repentance, you're not turning from your sin and trusting Jesus, there's reason for you to be fearful at the day of the Lord. You are the only one who will decide which of those two things it will be. You will decide if the day of the Lord will be a joyous thing or a dreadful thing that is not determined by your background, by your upbringing, or anything else. The kingdom is available for all. Love what Lance pointed out a few weeks ago, that it's interesting that Matthew, in his, in his account of the birth of Jesus, he doesn't mention the, the, the Jewish shepherds. Right? Most of the other gospel writers make a big deal about the angel appearing to the shepherds who were Jews. Matthew just brushes right past it, but places a lot of emphasis on these Persians, these magi from the east who were Gentiles, that the hope was for them too. From those who seem far off, the hope is near and at hand. Maybe you sit here today and you don't consider yourself a very successful person. If you feel like a lot of the things you've devoted yourself to, that there's been a lot of failure in the world's eyes, a lot of difficulty, that you don't look like a success story on the outside. Jesus the Galilean is your Messiah. The Galilean, the dude that didn't grow up in Jerusalem, the dude whose ministry looked like a failure, he is your Messiah and his kingdom is available for you. It is at hand. Maybe, maybe you have been successful, right? Maybe, maybe there's pride. Maybe there's, maybe you think that Jesus only came for, for the downtrodden and, and, and the hurting and, and you sit in a place where, where you wonder like, am I the kind of person Jesus came for? And the answer is Yes. We'll see in our Bibles that the Pharisees even turn to Jesus and believe in the book of Acts. Whether you're unsuccessful, successful, prideful, discouraged, the Messiah is for you. Jesus and his kingdom are held out for you. Maybe, maybe you're the old Christian that, um, that Keith talked about last week, that maybe you've been believing in Jesus for a long time and, and you're embarrassed by the lack of growth that you've had. Jesus is for you. The Galilean Messiah, the one who came for those who were overlooked. So church, if anyone, including your own conscience, has ever told you that you were not prestigious enough to really be accepted by God and play an important, legitimate role in his kingdom, if you're believing that lie that for whatever reason, you're not really at a point where God wants to use you in a significant way, that you have a real role to play in his kingdom. That's how the Galileans felt. Matthew has good news for you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Isaiah said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. This Messiah is for you and he is for me. His kingdom is at hand and it is available for anyone who would believe and repent and trust Jesus. And when you do that, nothing else matters. If, if you don't know Jesus this morning and you, you, you see people singing and celebrating and lifting up their hands and just rejoicing in this, this gospel, this, this God who we believe in, that's why, because when, when you see that, when you own that, when you, when you realize that despite where you've come from, that God has come and made a way to bring you in, to make you a son and daughter of his, fully accepted and pleasing and given a place at the table, nothing else matters. Everything else can go away and that is enough. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the book of Matthew. God, I'm grateful for this study I got to do this week in it and this emphasis on you sending Jesus as a Galilean um, to a place that wasn't considered esteemed and elite and the hope that that gives us if we don't consider ourselves esteemed and elite. Um, God, I pray that as we walk through Matthew, that would just continue to encourage us to be reminded week in and week out um, that you came for us that you came for those who needed you, for those who were near and those who were far, for, for the sick and the healthy, for the, the poor and the rich, for the successful and the downtrodden. God, I pray that that truth would sink deeper and deeper into our hearts as we go through this book. In Jesus' name, amen.